And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome back to the Mentors Radio. I'm Tom Laurie. So often in life, we get stuck in a cycle of response. We put out fires, we deal with emergencies, we stay downstream handling one problem after another, but we never make our, our way upstream to fix the systems that cause the problems. Cops chase robbers, doctors treat patients with chronic illnesses, and call center reps address customer complaints. But crimes, these chronic illnesses and complaints are preventable. So what keeps us from solving these problems before they happen? Our guest today is Dan Heath, who makes the case for an upstream mindset and has just released Upstream, the quest to solve problems before they happen. He offers a solution to seemingly intractable and unforeseen problems. Dan is the East Coast half of the Heath Brothers Thought Leadership Trust. He is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports social entrepreneurs, and his brother Chip is a professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. They have offered four four books that have sold more than three million copies worldwide, Made to Stick, Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, and Decisive, How to Make Better Decisions in Life and Work. Dan, thank you for joining us today from the East Coast. Tom, thanks for having me on the show. So you claim that uh, a lot of these problems that I mentioned, crime uh, and social problems and business problems are preventable. I think for our audience, let's get started with a couple of examples that you use. And let's start with Mayor Larry Morrissey, I guess former Mayor Larry Morrissey, uh, from Rockford, Illinois, and the Mayor's Challenge. Yes, let me take you back to 2015. So Mayor Morrissey is in his third term. Rockford, by the way, is the second biggest city in Illinois behind Chicago. It's about 150,000 people. Morrissey said when he had first started as mayor about nine years prior, he had created a 10-year plan uh, to eliminate homelessness. And he said in year nine of the 10-year plan, they had made essentially no progress whatsoever. And so in early 2015, a colleague of his invited him to join something called the Mayor's Challenge, which was a, a federal initiative with the goal of ending veteran homelessness around the country. And, and Larry Morrissey's first reaction was basically an eye roll, because he'd been working on this, as I said, for nine years to, to, to no seeming effect. He thought, what in the world is going to change this time? But he reluctantly agreed to go to some, some training that was offered by HUD, uh, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, in early 2015. And ten months after that training concluded, Rockford became the first city in the United States to eliminate the problem of veteran homelessness and chronic homelessness. And so the obvious question is, what in the world happened in those 10 months? 
So let me walk you through how the city managed to, to triumph in 10 months where it had failed for nine years prior. The first change that they made was a mental one. I, I went up to Rockford and I talked to some of the leaders, including uh, Jennifer Jager, who's the community services director and, and one of the, the architects of this work. And she said uh, the first thing they had to do, and, and she called it a I believe in fairies moment. And what she's talking about is they shifted their lens from combating homelessness or trying to reduce the harm of homelessness to one of eliminating it altogether. And she said when they made that shift and when they really believed it, they had to rewire all of their approaches to the problem. So, for instance, one of the things that complicates working on homelessness or other complicated social problems is that the ownership tends to be divided up among many different people. So if you think about who's got a stake in homelessness, well, homeless shelters, social service agencies, the VA, the health system, the police, the fire department, on and on and on. Right? But, but no one in that list of constituents actually owns eliminating homelessness. There's just some kind of uh, amorphous boundaries between their work. And so for the first time, they got all these people together in the same room on a regular basis, you know, once or twice a month, to work on homelessness. So that was part one, is they brought together all the people who owned pieces of the puzzle. And then the second part that I think was actually even more profound was they completely changed the way that they worked on homelessness. So when they got together, they didn't sit around uh, pontificating about homeless policy. What they did was they went person by person. So what I mean is, in the old days, cities used to take an annual census of the homeless population. You know, one day in you know, March, they would go around, uh, count all the homeless people around, and then that was the one data point they collected for an entire year. And Jennifer Jager and her colleagues said, this is madness. If we're going to change this, we've got to get better data, more up-to-the-moment data. And they began to collect what they called a real-time census. And, and I don't want to over-dramatize this. I, I saw this thing. It was a Google Doc where they had every person who was homeless in the community listed by name. You know, the first row might be Fred, and the second row was Steve. And they would have updates on their location and their health status. And when all those constituents I was talking about got together around the table, what they were working on was not the problem of homelessness. What they were working on is, hey, who's seen Steve in the last week? Where is he? Uh, how's he doing? Is his health okay? Uh, when are we going to have housing available for Steve? Okay, we've got it. Okay, who's going to do the outreach to Steve to tell him uh, we're ready for him to move in? And so it became like this tangible, concrete, human problem for the first time. And all of a sudden, when, when you get that close to the problem, when you can see the face of the human being suffering from it, it changes your motivation it changes your strategy, and it also allows you to make more visible progress. And 10 months later, they had housed all of the veterans and the chronically homeless people in their community, and they've maintained that to this day. And, and so there's some powerful clues in that story about how we can shift our mindset when we want to solve problems before they happen. Yeah, one of them is granularity. One of them is absolutely granularity. I mean, that... That notion of working on a by-name basis, I, I was surprised by this when I first uncovered the story, but I saw that same strategy used by people in very different domains 
in New England, there's a group of people who have worked together to fight domestic violence escalating to homicide, and their work has been very successful, and it all hinges on a by-name list of, of women who've been victimized in, in, in the way that Rockford went on a by-name basis for homelessness. The same thing was true with the Chicago Public Schools. They've done phenomenal work in improving their graduation rate, and despite the scale of that district, I mean, we're talking about 300,000 students, right? CPS, the school district, is bigger than the city of Rockford. But nonetheless, their progress was made on a student-by-student basis. It's very powerful when you get that close to a problem. And that's why in the book I say often, you know, macro starts with micro, that, that we can't solve problems for millions of people or even thousands of people until we understand how to make the system work for one person. Well, when we come back after a break, we're gonna, I'm going to have you talk a little bit about Expedia so we can give an example in the world of business. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with our guest mentor, upstream author, Dan Heath. We're talking about how to solve problems before they happen. Thank you for listening and thank you for spreading the word about the Mentors Radio. We have doubled our podcast downloads. Make sure you tell your friends. You can go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on past shows to find many of our great past guests. This is Tom Lorries, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we are joined by Dan Heath, and we're talking about better decision-making when confronting seemingly intractable problems. Remember, you can listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. So, Dan, we were talking about uh, some cases that uh, upstream uh, thinking uh really help solve some problems. I, would you tell us a little bit about the Expedia story so we can have a business example? Yes, this is one of my favorites. So back in 2012, there was a guy named Ryan O'Neill who worked at Expedia. And of course, Expedia is the online travel site where you can book flights and hotels and what have you. He was looking through some data about their call center. You know, even though it's a website, if you have a problem with your reservation, you can call a 1-800 number for help. And he found a statistic that just made his jaw drop. And it was that for every 100 transactions that were booked on the website, 58 of the 100 people called the call center for some kind of support, so to, you know, which would seem to pretty much nullify the point of having a self-service online website if you've eventually got to pick up the phone to talk to somebody. And so he was just blown away by this. He got his manager involved, Tucker Moody, and they began to search and try to make sense of this. Pretty soon they had compiled a list of the, the top reasons that people were calling. And the number one reason by far was people were calling to get a copy of their itinerary. I'm talking about 20 million calls were placed in 2012 for a copy of the itinerary. That's like every man, woman, and child in Florida calling Expedia for an itinerary. And so they quickly got together a working group to pursue this problem, you know, uh, they started with the number one item and they worked their way down the list. And for something like itinerary copies, the solutions were, were very simple. Uh, a lot of times what was happening is the itineraries were getting caught in spam folders, and so they changed the way they sent emails to avoid that. And 
they added a self-service option online, and they added an option to the IVR, you know, press 2 if you're calling for a copy of your itinerary. And pretty quickly, they managed to turn 20 million calls into zero. I mean, they just eliminated it. So as a technical problem, you know, this was not that interesting. But what interests me and what I find fascinating is how this happened in the first place. Like, how could you get to 20 million calls before this is on your radar? Like, you would think that there would be an alarm bell ringing by the time you got to your third millionth call for an itinerary. And I think that the the reason it happened is something that virtually all organizations suffer from. And it has to do with the way we divide organizations into silos. So if you look at the teams at Expedia, there's a marketing team whose job it is to get people to the Expedia website instead of going to Kayak or Google or somewhere else. And then there's a team that works on the website itself, and they try to make the experience so fluid and so smooth that you are funneled down to a transaction. And then there's an IT team that keeps all the plumbing working and and maximizes the uptime on the site. And then finally, there's the call center people, and they're measured by how quickly they can get you off the phone and how happy you are when you get off. And all those goals make sense at a, at a micro level. But when you ask the question, whose job in that system is it to make sure that customers don't need to call for support, the answer is nobody. It's none of those people's jobs. And, in fact, it's worse than that. No one in that whole system would even benefit if the number of calls plunged. It, no one would get a bonus. No one would be rewarded. It's simply outside their... Uh, scope of action within their silos. And so this is a classic example of where, in some ways, it's easier to organize for downstream response. You know, that uh, when you call up the call center, you can, you can talk to that one customer support rep, and they can be managed. And a manager can be watching their times and say, Dan, you know, you took a little bit too long on that phone call. We need to whittle down that time. And, and over time, you can go from a three-minute average call to a two-and-a-half-minute average call to a a two-and-a-quarter average call. And that's the way most of corporate America is run. But but what's lost in that system is you spend so much time managing the downstream response that you forget, hey, we're managing a problem that we could have prevented altogether. And as soon as Expedia made that shift toward upstream thinking, they managed to make a $100 million problem, uh, 20 million calls times five bucks a piece, just vanish virtually overnight. So you've uh, talked about uh, the problem or several problems, and it reminds me of a quote attributed to Einstein, which is, if I were given an hour in which to do a problem upon which my life depended, I would spend 40 minutes studying it, 15 minutes reviewing it, and five minutes solving it. Mm-hmm. Which gets to which gets to part of it sounds like because you talked about defining or the accountability, specialization or silos, uh, and it gets to and the granularity. A lot of it has to do with framing the problem, doesn't it? It does. How we frame it. it. I, and and I think there's a lot of art to framing. Like I talked to a guy um, just a couple of weeks ago who had read the book and works in manufacturing. And he was giving me an example from his world. He was saying, you know, he works for a snowmobile manufacturer. And he said, there's a point in the line where there are something like 16 different bolts 
that, uh, that have to be used by the same person. Uh, and so if, if you want to set up a good ergonomic interface for that person, what do you do? You create 16 different buckets that are all in arm's reach, and then for quality's sake, you try to make sure they don't get two bolts confused that look the same, and so maybe you color code them or maybe you put them in very different locations so they can't mistake one for the other. And, and, and this guy that I was talking to was saying, you know, you, you can get it in your head that efficiency is the end game, and you start thinking about all these tweaks you could make to make the 16-bolt processor faster. But he said the real magic is when you think, hey, wait a second, why are we using 16 different kinds of bolts? Why don't we design this thing to use two kinds of bolts or one kind of bolt? And, and the, the magic is upstream in the design process, and sometimes we, we get so embedded in, in this kind of quest for mindless efficiency that we forget the bigger issues that are at stake. So in the, I think it was 1990s, Six Sigma became very popular. Mm -hmm. I became a believer that Six Sigma is great if you're making a commodity, but if it actually put a, uh, it made things more rigid in terms of thinking outside the box. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's, are you familiar with Six Sigma? It's a quality control approach. It. Yeah, I think I, I spoke to a lot of people who were who were uh, acolytes of Six Sigma and Lean and some other kind of quality movements. And I think probably ninety percent of the, the the spirit of what they do is is compatible with the spirit of of this book I've written upstream. In in the sense of of trying to think systemically about problems and trying to get the right people involved. I think probably that remaining 10% is what you isolated, which is sometimes there can be a rigidity to the approaches that, uh, that can be kind of, um, uh, what's the expression, penny-wise and pound-foolish. You know, it's like you, you can solve a problem at the, at the, uh, at the wrong level, um, and you might be efficient at level five, but, but the, the right point of intervention in the system was at level one. Well, let's uh, come back to that topic when we return. We have a quick commercial break, and we'll return with Dan Heath, the author of Upstream. We're talking about how to solve problems before they happen. Remember, you can take The Mentors Radio Show with you anywhere by subscribing to our podcast at thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we're joined by Dan Heath, and we're talking about better decision-making when confronting seemingly intractable problems. Remember, you can hear us on the Salem Radio Network in California and Texas and online anytime at TheMentorsRadio.com or any podcast platform, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. Dan, in the last thing, we talked a little bit about Six Sigma, the 90%, the 10%, whatever. I want to come back to that for a second. Um, it, it comes home to me in the fact that my grandfather was uh, editor and publisher of the Chicago Sun-Times. And so the uh, newspaper industry is something that I followed for many years. And, of course, it had been automated and more efficient and delivery systems change. So they were doing all the Six Sigma kinds of things, but they didn't see Internet coming. Uh, 
And today, today, as you know, I mean, this is downstream thinking. We're what's happening in the world, and I see a lot of people. I I, I run a uh, program out here in California for people that have lost their jobs, and I urge them to look at trends and figure out what where are they on the growth curve in an industry. So as they interview for things, they get on something that's growing rather than something that's declining. But would your idea of upstream thinking uh, uh, apply to something like that? Yeah, I think the the main shift that it that it creates is I'm trying to get people out of the trap of kind of micro optimizing and and specifically of reacting rather than preventing. So like the, the back to the Expedia call center example, I think probably everybody listening to this that works in a business or even in an organization has some equivalent of that think of that call center rep who's measured on can you get someone's itinerary resent to them in a faster time. You know, you go from three minutes to two minutes and 50 seconds, and that's, that's a big win, and you get a reward, and you get praised. But it was the wrong thing to be solving for, right? We optimized at the wrong level. It, it reminds me of, um, there was a story about a quarterback named Ken O'Brien who used to play for the Jets, and he threw a lot of interceptions. And so the, the team lawyers at one point thought, aha, we're going to be clever about this because we know how powerful incentives are. And so in his next contract renewal, they penalized him for the number of interceptions he threw. And, and it worked. He did throw fewer interceptions the next season because he pretty much stopped throwing the ball altogether. And, <laughs> and I think our organizations are littered with examples like that, where we get so clever at the, at the micro level that we miss the macro issues. And I think this upstream way of thinking is a way of just kind of forcing us to get out of those, those little boxes that we put ourselves in. No, I agree with that. I'm just thinking, as I'm thinking through upstream thinking, it applies at multiple levels in your personal life, in your organizational life. But then at the highest level, if you think about a board of directors, it's looking out into the future and the problem is going to be survival, let's say, and looking upstream on what else is out there and making sure that, you know, you're like the lighthouse when you're sitting as a CEO or uh, board of directors trying to see what's coming down the pike. I, I just think I'm, I, I, there's a lot of places. I, I want to interject I th- there, by the way. I, I think you're totally right about the board. And, and the board is one of the few places in an organization where it's natural and even obligatory, you would think, to do upstream thinking. You know, so many people in an organization are pushed to specialize, pushed to get faster. But but the board should be the one place where that kind of thinking is effortless. And, and if you're on the board of an organization, I feel like you could kind of test yourself by thinking, was there anybody in the past couple of years who surfaced the idea of what would happen to this organization if a pandemic hit? Um, because, uh, look, a pandemic is not an asteroid strike. You know, it, it's not some kind of fluke event that no one saw coming. People have been talking for years about pandemics. And I know we'll be talking more about COVID later, but just in terms of your organization's capacity to think upstream, it's worth asking, did anybody put this on the organizational radar? And if not, you might do some soul-searching about why that is and whether you're paying enough attention to next year's problems as well as this minute's problems. 
This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. Today we're with author Dan Heath, and our topic is stop firefighting problems and prevent them from happening in the first place. Well, let's um, talk. We're going to come back to COVID in the next block. Let's talk a little bit about what are the psychological forces that get in our way of upstream thinking. What are those? In the book, I argue that there are three forces that just constantly push us downstream, and I'll just kind of give a thumbnail sketch of each one, and we can dive in wherever you want. The first is, is something I call problem blindness, which says that when we don't see a problem, obviously we can't fix it. And so uh, what happens is we often habituate to problems, or we often assume that they're natural or inevitable, and, and we forget that we have the agency and the wherewithal to to influence them. So that's number one, problem blindness. The second is a lack of ownership. So um, if your house is on fire, it's, it's very clear who owns the problem of extinguishing that fire, the fire department. Uh, but if you ask whose job is it to prevent your house from catching on fire, that's a complicated question, right? It's kind of like homelessness in Rockford. There's a bunch of people who have a stake in that. Uh, you as the homeowner have a stake, and the fire department has a stake, and the people who wrote the building codes have a stake, and the people who built your home and the materials they use have a stake. And in situations like that where there's no one clear owner, often the ball just gets dropped. So that's the second barrier is a lack of ownership. And then the third phenomenon is, is tunneling, which is a word that I borrowed from a book called Scarcity. And tunneling says that we're so busy and we're so consumed with the day's firefighting and, and reactions that, that, that we're often just lacking the bandwidth to pay attention to something that's upstream. Like uh, in the chapter, I review this, this study that was done of nurses, and a researcher shadowed nurses for hundreds of hours, and, and their, their day was just like constantly pinballing from one problem to the next, and they were working around these problems and finding clever solutions but the researcher was astonished to find that they basically never, in these hundreds of hours, engaged in systemic-level problem-solving. It was just, how do I get past this problem to get on with my day? And, and I would argue that that's nothing to do with, with nursing, that I think that's pretty much true of all of us in our lives and organizations. So, so problem blindness, lack of ownership, and tunneling are the three forces that keep pushing and pushing and pushing us downstream. Boy, that's a lot to cover in those three areas when I think about the uh, ownership issue. And you mentioned in your book that or somewhere along the line, health care is the ultimate tunneling problem. But when you come back to ownership, a lot of people today are arguing about how we can hospitals are geared to fix, fix problems, uh, but not to prevent problems. Uh, there, there, and a lot of that has to do with how we pay hospitals and how people move from one health plan to another. I was involved with preventative health for a few years, and we had a great uh, solution for medication adherence, which is a serious problem and leads to about half of the hospital hospitalizations and emergency room visits. But to implement the solution, it meant that somebody had to pay the money, uh, but another healthcare insurer may actually get the benefit downstream. And let's come back after the break and talk about that some more. Uh, This is Tom Laurie. Today we're joined by Dan Heath. We'll be back in a few minutes. And this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. 
Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we're joined by Dan Heath, and we're talking about better decision-making when confronting seemingly intractable problems. Our website is mentorsradio.com. Dan, we were talking a little bit about health care and my experience and the problem of preventative medicine, and you've uh, said that it's the ultimate tunneling problem. Uh, we presently have, uh, going through this COVID crisis, a couple of things. I want you to talk a little bit about COVID and what you're seeing and what you've been thinking about. And also, one of the problems that's really on my mind these days is what you call the chicken problem. And, you know, it's amazing because we are showing uh, that some of the things that we're doing as a nation are working. And now people are starting to get upset about what we did in the first place. And it's almost like chicken little and it didn't happen the way everyone thought it was going to happen, although it could have been really worse, but a lot of people did things. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, this whole idea of upstream thinking, pandemics, the ripple effects, and the chicken problem. Yes, yes. So um, I, I want to start with a quote from this woman I interviewed named Julie Pavlin, who worked on infectious disease for the Army for many years. And she said something that stuck with me, that in public health, if you do your job, they cut your budget because nobody's getting sick. <laughs> you know, no, nothing bad has happened. And, and that in a way, is the curse of upstream excellence, is that the dream is you, you don't save the, day. save the day. Saving the day is really visible. The people who save the day are the heroes. But if you keep the day from needing to be saved, often you're invisible. And, and in fact, in Julie Pablo's telling, you may actually be punished by having your budget cut. And so that's the curse uh, of upstream work, is, is how do you prove that something did not happen? And so I even think about, in recent years before COVID, you know, we've had some trial runs with, with, with Ebola and MERS and, and SARS. And what, what happened in all three of those cases uh, was, was there was a very rapid and effective response that essentially neutralized the issues. I mean, a lot of people were hurt, to be clear, but, but it could have been much, much worse. And I think the temptation is, at that point, to say, oh, well, that was no big deal. Why did we spend all that time in the media getting worried about that? And, and the reality is we avoided a major problem because of competent work. It, it, it reminds me of um, the Y2K incident, which, yep. um, you know, it, 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 people that are younger than, what, 20 or older than 20 or 30 probably remember the crossover to the new millennium and um, how much panic there was about that. And I talked to the guy who ran the government's response, a gentleman named John Koskin, a fascinating guy. Uh, Bill Clinton appointed him the Y2K czar, and he told me as soon as he took the job, he knew it was a thankless role because uh, if things went haywire and traffic signals shut down and there was a run on banks and people were, you know, making their way to the wilderness, he was going to be the guy to blame. And if nothing happened, as was the case, they would all say, well, what was the big fuss about that? Um, so this is a dynamic we have to be really careful about uh, when we think about upstream work. And, and one of my ulterior motives in writing this book was, was to try to shine a light on this and to say, hey, what if we lived in a world where our heroes were people that, that had such quiet competence that, that we essentially erased 
a lot of the drama and a lot of the need for heroics from our organizations and from our communities. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? This is Tom Laurie listening to Mentors Radio. We're with Dan Heath today, author Dan Heath, and our topic is how you can stop firefighting problems and prevent them from happening in the first place. So as you were talking, I was thinking, and I'm a big believer in Tom Rath's and Gallup's Strengths Finder and different strengths we bring into an organization. And there's one about thinking outside the box and connecting the dots. Can't can can we really develop upstream thinking or is it a certain few that have that aptitude? I think it's some of both. I think some people just lean this way naturally. I think that some people are are kind of naturally wired to think at the systems level. But but I don't think this is something we want to just, you know, marginalize or, you know, appoint one person in the organization to be the upstream thinker. I think this is something that, that everybody needs to get better at. And and I want to be clear that you don't have to be Nostradamus to, to prepare for something like a pandemic. You know, if, if you had assembled some smart people in almost any organization and said, hey, what's an What's an exogenous event that could happen that would really, really wallop the way that we do work here that we would have no control over on everybody's top five list would have been a pandemic. I mean, it was no secret, no surprise. And so the question is, which organizations had the forethought to do some preparation and some training and which didn't? And and there are some great examples of people who did, by the way. I don't think this is just an indictment. I think this is a... this is a chance when we should be rewarding the people who did the hard work. Uh, there's one organization, I'm spacing on the name, sadly, uh, but they, they created a situation where in every meeting where um, one person had to work remotely, they all worked remotely. So if one person was out of the office or out of town and they had to come in via Zoom, everybody else would get on Zoom too. And, and the express intent of that was to get people more comfortable with remote working tools to give them practice, because the leadership knew there's a lot of things in the world that could go wrong, right, ranging from a pandemic to a terrorist act, um, that could force us to go remote, and we better have some practice under our belt before that happens. And, and that, to me, is a great example of how leaders can, can push us upstream. And I would think we talked uh, off-air a little bit about uh, the price of oil going below zero. And uh, some of the other consequences as a result of the pandemic, many of which we haven't really thought about, but we're certainly going to see as we get back to normal. I I would think for somebody to practice their upstream thinking to get better at it is to start thinking about and reading and understanding what those potential trends are and see if they can map them out in their own mind and then see if they actually happen just as a training exercise. I, I don't know if you suggest that that's something people could do. It seemed to me it'd be a way for people to develop those skills. I agree. And, and one thing I hope kind of sticks with the people listening to this right now is is, is upstream is a direction, not a destination. So there, it's not like there's one place that's downstream and one place that's upstream. You can keep going upstream further and further as a way of ex- extending your solution set. So like in the context of COVID, what I mean is you can have some solutions that prevent problems really close to when they happen, like um, to prevent healthcare workers from getting COVID from patients, you need to have adequate uh, masks and respirators, which is sort of, of course, something we failed at totally. Uh, 
And, but, but that's very, very close to the incident. That's just maybe a half step upstream. And then to go further upstream, you need to have adequate, sur- adequate surveillance systems around the world to tell you what's coming and from where. And public health experts have done a ton over the past few decades at improving our intelligence. Like the fact that we know what's happening in South Korea and Singapore uh, and China is just a, a miraculous victory for uh, information systems and surveillance systems that tell us what may be headed our way. And then to go even further upstream, one of the best ways to prevent a pandemic rather than just mitigate the harm of a pandemic is to start looking at that that animal-to-human transmission. And, you know, for instance, so many of the viruses come from populations of bats. And, you know, bats aren't in every territory of the world. Like, this is a finite problem with potential solutions, and we may never completely eliminate uh, animal-to-human transmission, but we could certainly mitigate it with the right strategies. And so uh, that same process that I just talked through for COVID is something you could use for, for almost any problems. Like, what's, what's the fix when you're really close to the problem? What's a little bit more distant? And, and what could actually eliminate the problem outright? We're going to come back for our last segment after this break. We're with Upstream author Dan Heath. We're talking about solving problems before they happen. You can find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we are joined by Dan Heath, and we're talking about better decision-making and getting away from firefighting and emergency problems. So as we close out the show, I'd like to spend more time learning more from you and your experience and what you've seen on things I can do and my listeners can do to develop, uh, become better at upstream thinking. And I suspect you might have some tips and things and programs or something that you've seen people do to develop how to look at the uh, upstream and solve problems before they happen. Yeah, let me call out um, two things that I think would apply in a lot of different situations. One is get suspicious about heroics. And what I mean is anytime you're seeing that people have to rush in to save the day again and again, ask yourself whether there might be something wrong with the system. So uh, one example that comes to mind is that LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn has this expensive subscription that they sell employers who want to recruit people. And, and back in the olden days, you know, which at LinkedIn is, you know, seven years ago or something, they used to have this philosophy that when it was renewal time for the subscription, you know, maybe in month 11 of a 12-month uh, cycle, they would pay real close attention to who hadn't been using it very much, and they would send in their best sales reps to, you know, save the day and make sure that the client was going to renew for another year. And then at one point, uh, a friend of mine, Dan Shapiro, said, what, what's, the, what's the earliest that we can detect um, when people are likely not to renew? And it turned out they could detect as early as the third or fourth week of the subscription, basically right after people signed up, that, that they were likely not to renew. And so they, they dug into why that was, and they realized that at LinkedIn, the deal was you kind of got value from the subscription right away or not at all. And so Shapiro said, 
So why don't we get out of the business of saving the day and transfer all those resources to the first month and get a really great world-class onboarding program going so that people are set up for success from the beginning. And what that did was it basically eliminated the need for rescues in month 11. So get suspicious of heroics and the need for heroics. And then the second thing is, earlier we talked about tunneling, the trap of always just reacting, reacting, reacting to problems. And the escape from tunneling can be, can be very simple. Uh, in health systems, for instance, they, they sometimes use what's called a safety huddle in the morning where they might meet for 20 minutes, nurses and doctors, and talk about problems they had the day prior, you know, near misses where something bad almost happened or the wrong medication was almost given to a patient, uh, and talk about how they could prevent that. And they look ahead to the day's work and, and some of its complexities, and they make plans for that. And that's, that's a way to allow people to escape from the demands of the day, the urgent demands, and zoom out and think more about the system uh, and do some upstream work. So those are two, two thoughts that may apply to your, your own organizations. Well, great. And we're, we're going to run out of time. And I got, I'm looking for one very quick answer. Of all the people you've met across your entire life, what is the attribute that you found that those who are, find the most joy in life have? Curiosity. I think that that fire to understand things better, to improve, to learn, uh, seems to really predispose people to, to meaning and to satisfaction. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed digging in with you on upstream thinking. And that's it till next Tom. week. We've been talking. You're welcome. Uh, we've been talking about how you can stop firefighting problems with author Dan Heath. You can find a link to Dan's just-released Upside, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen, on our website, which is at thementorsradio.com. You can learn more about this and other shows by going to our website, and when you're there, make it easy for yourself and subscribe to future shows. Remember, you can also listen to us online on any device at any time at thementorsradio.com or on any podcast platform, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.